Welcome to the Stonelaw Church Podcast. I'm Neil Watson. And whether you are a regular worshipper with us, or whether you just listen to this podcast, I pray that the, the words of the message would be a real blessing to you, and that it would bring you closer to God as you experience more of the love of Jesus in your life. I've always been fascinated by Palm Sunday ever since I was a, a little boy. I've loved that, that mental image that I have of all these people waving the palm branches and singing as Jesus comes in on the back of a donkey. And I loved it as a child, but I think I, I be, begin to love it even more each and every year <laughs> as I, I get older. And the thing is, I have a tendency to look at things quite deeply. And it drives Elizabeth crazy sometimes. But I like really looking deep into something. I think it's a gift that God has given me. And it allows me to go deeper into the scriptures. It allows me to think of what's going on. And I do believe that this is a gift from God to, to help me in the role that he has called me to as a minister. And one of the things that fascinates me about our passage from Mark this morning is just the sheer mishmash of people that made up the crowd that day. You know, I want you to imagine that you are in that crowd and you're taking a look around as you're seeing all these people. What can you hear? What can you see? What can you smell as a donkey's walking past? Who do you see? The thing is, very little is said about them, but clearly the Romans would have been there. Could almost imagine them getting agitated as this, this crowd is starting to develop and grow and start to make as much noise as they were. Hosanna, here is the king coming. Pretty sure it would have at least got their attention. And to be honest, there was probably more Roman soldiers there than there normally would have been at any other time in the year all positioned towards Jerusalem as they were charged with keeping the Jewish people under control in the run-up to Passover and the big festivals. Crowds were a potential for trouble for the Romans. They didn't like crowds. And as the Jews were getting ready to celebrate Passover, it wasn't uncommon for some Jewish zealots to to use it as an opportunity to try and stir up the Jewish people to try and overthrow the Romans. And maybe the Roman soldiers might have thought this is what is about to happen. The crowd are being stirred up. Here comes the king. Maybe they were expecting to have a, a battle of some sort as this king is coming towards them. They might have one hand on their sword. And then they would see Jesus on the back of a foal, a, a small donkey. 
You can only imagine that, that that would have caused a great deal of hilarity amongst the Roman soldiers. Here they were, seeing this triumphal entry of Jesus the King. They were, they were getting themselves wound up, agitated, thinking they were going to have to have a fight. And here comes Jesus. This triumphal entry looked nothing like a Roman triumphal entry. They would have seen similar types of tributes before, but it was always on the back of a horse and lots of gold and swords. Some of the soldiers were probably laughing as they see this so-called king coming in on a donkey. What real king would come in on a donkey? What powerful leader would stoop so low? They probably found it amusing. Now, Jesus could have walked into Jerusalem 2,000 years ago, but he chose to go in on the colt of a donkey. It was a graphic and symbolic action. He was the Messiah. In Zechariah 9, we read, Rejoice greatly, O daughter Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter Jerusalem. Lo, your king comes to you. Triumphant and victorious is he, humble and riding on a donkey on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Compared to a Roman tribute or a Roman triumphal entry, Jesus entering into Jerusalem like this would have looked hilarious to the Romans. And they themselves probably felt angry at themselves and feeling foolish that they'd even got themselves so wound up in the first place. Because what educated person would actually believe the things that they're saying about this guy? Makes the blind see. The lame walk. Calm storms with just a word. Feed 5,000 people with five loaves and two fish. Now they can safely dismiss this Jesus of Nazareth as a nobody. It's a joke that's gone too far, but the threat is averted. But then we look at the bulk of the crowd, the Jewish people themselves. And as we look at it, we think, oh, that's wonderful. They're, they're properly celebrating Jesus coming in. But the thing is, we can read in other um, accounts of this, that the people were really looking for something for themselves. They might get something for themselves. Fascinated by the miracles that they had heard about or maybe even seen. They were wondering what miracle they might receive for themselves. They're not focused on the message of Jesus. They're there to be entertained. It's not a complete long shot that they would have heard the story of Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead and that he might be able to perform a miracle like that for them. And that was their attitude. What will you do for me, Jesus? What, what will you give me? And that's not to suggest that we can't ever ask Jesus for anything. Jesus wants us to ask for his help. But it's that we shouldn't allow our focus to be diverted away from him and try to seek selfish things. He wants to help and to guide us. We need to remember we need to approach him in the right way. 
with honour, praise and thankfulness. There were people in the crowd that day that recognised Jesus as the Messiah and genuinely were celebrating him coming into Jerusalem. The work that God had promised was happening in front of them. They got it. They knew that their Messiah was with them. There were, however, a group who did not see Jesus as the Messiah in any way, shape or form. They're the group that would have been sulking in the background. Definitely not celebrating or waving palm branches. The religious leaders, the authorities, the Pharisees. They'd already tried to stop Jesus. Tried to stop his movement. And here was Jesus coming in with the crowd celebrating him. This message of inclusion, salvation for everyone. You can only imagine their fury about what is happening here in Jerusalem. They still believed that God had this one chosen group and everyone else was off the table. I remember hearing someone talking about the Pharisees. An illustration that they gave was that the Pharisees were like... Um, postmen who walk around with a, a sack of letters and as they're doing that they're admiring the wonderful letters that are in their sack and how wonderful their sack is they forgot what their purpose was they were to deliver the letters and the Pharisees forgot that that they were called to deliver God's message not keep it to themselves and shine it and see how shiny it was. They've missed the point of what they're supposed to be doing. They've been given this great news that God was sending a Messiah, but he failed. Sorry, the Pharisees failed in their mission of being light to the world. They'd kept it for themselves. They've lost sight of the big picture. And as you and read from, uh, from John's gospel, we're able to read that there were some Greeks there. They just want to meet Jesus. Say, sir, will you take us to Jesus? We just want to see him. They'd obviously heard about him and just wanted to get close to him. We have no idea or to what end the Greeks were wanting to speak to him, because, but John felt it was important to include it in his gospel. So I look forward to going digging deeper on that one. But it was obviously important to John that they would be included in his account of the day. And the thing is, I'm fascinated by this story because of the crowd, but also for one verse that you read out for us earlier. The very last verse, verse 11. Then he entered Jerusalem and went into the temple and when he had looked around at everything, as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. Jesus stopped and looked around at everything. After experiencing the euphoria of the, the crowd and the, the singing and the, the jubilation, Jesus stops to take a look around. And I've always wondered what 
Jesus' thoughts were at that particular moment as he's taking a look around. Did he remember the, the first time that he was at this temple as a 12-year-old? Did he think about that story of his parents panicking when he was lost? Did he think back through the history of his people and how important the temple had been to his people? That God had made himself known. We'll never know exactly what was going through Jesus's mind at that point as he stopped to take a look around. I think he must have thought to himself, Father, these people don't have a clue. No matter who was there that day, the Romans who were amused and laughed at Jesus, the Jews who wanted to, to join the party and find out what was in it for themselves, the religious leaders, the Pharisees, reluctant to give up their power, their prestige, their authority, unwilling to accept Jesus as the Messiah, or those who just simply wished to see him. Each and every one of them had their own ideas, their own thoughts on what was happening that day. They all had their own thoughts on what the future would look like. However, in amongst all of the, the jubilation and celebration, not one of them could possibly have known what was about to happen over the next few days. That would see pain and sorrow. Only Jesus knew what was going on. And he stopped to take a look around at everything. And the journey that we'll take next week through Holy Week can be a really emotional journey. We should allow the, the Holy Spirit to minister to us as we journey through that week. And if you can make it to the, the Rutherland Churches Together joint services next week, then please do. Jesus stopped and took a look around at everything. And I see a link between our passages and one of my favorite verses from Romans 8. Paul writes, We know that all things work together for good for those who love God, who are called according to his purpose. And remember, Jesus stopped and took a look around at everything. N.T. Wright is one of my favorite scholars and authors. He writes in a, a very engaging way. He and his books were a great companion uh, to me while I was doing my studies at New College. I loved his insights. Not only is N.T. Wright, but also in his guise as Tom Wright. He's helped me with my own personal devotions as well. He tells an interesting story of one time that he was leading at a, a conference. And after he delivered his talk, someone came up to him and said, you know, N.T., I really loved your book, but I really feel that Tom Wright nails it so much better than you do. Are you related? 
And apparently Tom just smiled and nodded. You see, as an academic, he's NT, and when he writes for uh, a more devotional sense, it's, it's Tom Wright. And I highly recommend his commentaries uh, on the New Testament um, if you want to go deeper with the Bible. But one of the interesting things that Tom highlights in his book on Romans is that there's a number of different names that God has given. And in Tom, Tom Wright's translation of Romans 8, God receives this new name, and it's the searcher of hearts. God stops and takes a look around at everything in our hearts. Tom's quick to acknowledge that this might be a scary thing for us because we might not necessarily want God to be snooping about in our hearts all the time. But the thing is, God isn't looking for bad things to punish us with. God is looking into our hearts to see how deep we love him. Because without our love for him, none of it makes any sense. God's love for us, our love for God, is important. But the thing is, Romans 8.28 has been described as a, a bit of a double-edged sword. Because on the one hand, it can be used for great encouragement. You know, we might find ourselves in troubling circumstances, and that verse can really speak to us. We might find ourselves in a real tough place. But the thing is, when we read that particular verse, we're kind of struck and we start to ask ourselves a question. Because there's, we might want to ask the question, do all things work out for good? Because there seems to be a couple of issues with this verse. The first is that the, they seem to promise something that we have trouble believing. You know, Paul writes, we know that in all things God works for good. Kind of thinking, Paul, can we really be sure that we know? Can you be so sure to write that? I think most of us are not quite as sure as Paul in his writing to the Romans. We might hope all things work for good. We might even try and try to believe that they will. I'm not sure we really know they will when we find ourselves in that tough place. The second is it seems to contain something that we feel should be left out. Because it says we know that in all things, all things, Seems a bit too definite for me. We might go as far as saying that some things work together for good. We understand that out of difficult times, we can be strengthened. We can learn new things about ourselves, new ways of coping. So there are things that can come out of it. We can learn great lessons about our faith. So some things clearly can work together for good. But it's not a surprise that, that Romans 8.28 is a beloved verse. Because you may well be able to provide testimony to that verse 
speaking in your life. You might have been sick, but the verse was like a medicine for your soul. You might have lost a loved one, and these words somehow comforted you. You might have been feeling crushed, beaten by the world, and these verses were able to give you hope to carry on. But it's not a shock to us that not everyone will take this verse. Because we might start asking ourselves, what do you mean good? Sickness isn't good. Murder isn't good. Divorce isn't good. War isn't good. Persecution isn't good. And that's the thing. Sometimes this verse from Romans 8 is misunderstood. It can be used by well-meaning Christians to try and help someone when we are sitting alongside them and they're struggling. We don't do it out of malice, but we can sometimes miss what Paul is trying to say. Paul's providing the answer to that great question, where is God when it hurts? He's right there at the beginning, or is he only there at the end? But in reality, God is there at the beginning, the end, and there throughout. And he shows us that in the person of Jesus. God is at work, not luck or chance. The answer is that Romans 8.28 begins with God. He was there before it all happened. He's there while you're going through it. And he's there to carry you to the end. And the thing is... <coughs> The Bible never asks us to, to pretend that pain isn't real or that we find ourselves struggling. Tragedy is tragedy. Pain is pain. But God wants you to know that he is with you throughout it all and that he's at work. So the thing is, is Paul saying that whatever happens is good? No. Is he saying that suffering and evil are, are, are good? No. Is he saying that we'll understand why God allows tragedy to happen? No. I'm seeing a few. Think about, okay, Neil, what is he saying? If he's not saying all of those things. Paul is saying, you have a God who is at work. There are mysteries in life that we will not understand this side of eternity. But God is at work. We're not always sure how. But to, to what end? It is always good. Never evil. God is at work. And it's always for good. So as we come to the end of this sermon, I want us to take away that while we can be like the crowd on Palm Sunday, so wrapped up in our, our own situations that we can't comprehend with all certainty what the future will be like. It works two ways. In the best of times, but probably more so in the worst, where we feel we need to hold on to God's truths even more. God is able to not only take the, the rubble of a broken creation and turn it into something beautiful. God promises that that is what he is doing and what he will do forevermore. And he shows us that in Jesus. We have a God who can take everything and turn it into good.
for those who love him and are called to his purpose. And those who are called receive the Holy Spirit. Help them to receive Jesus each and every day of their lives. People that are called Christians are called to have a new perspective on their lives and life in general. We're called to look through a different lens to the rest of the world. We need to look through the kingdom lens that we've looked at over these last months. Because through that lens, we're able to trust God. We don't place our faith in earthly treasures. We're able to find our security in an eternal life with our Father in heaven. Paul suggests that we're able to learn to accept, not resent the pain and persecution that will come. They're able to accept this because they know that God is with them throughout it all. And that we're never called to anything that God wouldn't do before us. He's willing to show us in the person of Jesus that he too would be willing to go through pain, suffering, persecution. And that all starts with a celebration on Palm Sunday. Through our journeys, God will be at work. So take some time to stop and look around at everything this week. Take a look at what God is doing and working out in your life. A work that is taking your situation and turning it into something good, everlasting. Because you love him and God loves you. Let us pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you again for your wonderful example. Your wonderful example of, of humility and love. That despite the situation that was unfolding, you held true to the purpose that God set before you. We thank you that you show your love for us and your willingness to, to endure that walk directly towards the cross. And Lord, we're sorry for when we take our eyes away and we forget it. And as we enter into Holy Week, we pray that by your Spirit we would be inspired, that we would be strengthened, that our faith would grow as we take that journey to the cross with you. Lord Jesus, we offer our praise, our worship, and our thanks. And we offer our prayers in your glory and glorious and precious name. Amen.